Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, Daniel chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning as we're working our way through the Old Testament book of Daniel. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. You can find it in the seat back in front of you or under the rack. And and if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to keep that Bible as our gift to you. Please take that, read it, and uh, I think you'd be helped if you had the Bible open and you followed along with us. We is our, it's our custom here to just work our way through books of the Bible, and we're in Daniel chapter 6. Several of you have asked what's next after Daniel. We think First Timothy, and maybe Second Timothy, if we have enough time before the end of the year. And then, buckle up, kids, Romans, starting January 2017. So as you're finding Daniel chapter 6, um, let me just mention a couple things. I, um, I, I am a little out of sorts today. First of all, I know the challenges that I faced this morning. It is Memorial Day weekend, the few, the proud, the Memorial Day weekend crowd. You've spent Saturday being jealous of all your friends that are out of town at the beach. And then we are dealing with one of the more familiar chapters probably in the Bible in the Old Testament, a story that uh, most of us, even if we didn't grow up in church, are to some degree familiar with, Daniel in the lion's den. And we're going to have to do some work to understand and maybe sort through some things that kind of maybe we learn that maybe aren't really the point of the story in the past. And then, um, it, I have, it's just so good to see these dear people. Um, over the uh, March, or May 29th, 1993, on this day, 23 years ago, um, I, along with two of these brothers here in this church, graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point. Two of my dear friends and classmates are here today. And um, Berkeley Baker, who lives in Atlanta, who comes down often, I've seen him over the years, comes down, they're in town for a soccer tournament. And a dear brother that I haven't seen for 23 years, um, Mike Davidson, who is a, a colonel in the United States Army. And I, if I knew the colonel was showing up, I would have shaved and been in regulation. <laughs> <laughs> Mike has commanded men in combat. Uh, commanded a battalion in the 82nd, I think. I don't know where you are now, but um, I feel like I should be at the position of attention. But it makes me good to feel a, call a colonel by his first name. <laughs> but um, Mike and Berkeley, just raise your hands. I want these folks to see. <laughs> um, I want you to, like, people make investments in your life along the way. And um, I've told you often about my big brother who shared the gospel with me months before, well, years, but really months before I went to West Point is when I think the Lord opened my eyes to the beauty of Christ and, and my sin. And then when I showed up at West Point, um, these, these two brothers were two of God's gifts to me to, uh, to encourage me. Uh, they're, they're men that I looked up to and... Um, I've thought about them a lot over the years. In fact, as I was watching Golden State and Thunder, the Oklahoma Thunder last night, I thought about all of our games in Arvin Gymnasium when um, 
I was going to say when I was shooting it like Clay Thompson, but anyway, never mind. Uh, I think it was probably the other way around, but um, it is so good to see you, brothers, and, and Berkeley's parents, his wife, and kids are here, and, and Berkeley's parents, pastor, Berkeley's dad's a pastor up in Mitchieville, Maryland. I don't know if you're still up there, but I remember going to your house for Thanksgiving and, and hearing you preach in that beautiful church there, and, um, and it is so good to see you, so good to see you. I'm just thankful for the Lord's grace. Well, I need to pray and gather myself, so let's do that. Um, On this Memorial Day weekend, I see a couple guys that are just getting back from deployments, and um, just so thankful for the Lord's grace that he would put us here in this town next to Fort Benning. Many, many men in this church have been deployed numerous times, and there are men in this church... Uh, women in this church that have fought for our freedom and that have dear ones that have lost their lives. And so just praise God for his goodness to us. Look, we, we are here to lift up Christ and not America. America is a, is, it is much more like Babylon than it is um, Jerusalem. But we're just grateful for God's providence, for, for putting us where we are in a strategic place around people that are so selfless. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text and to, uh, to hear his spirit speaking to us this morning. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. You are so good. Thank you by your kind providence that you have caused us to be born in or be part of this country which is certainly imperfect. But yet in your grace and the unfolding plan of your redemption, you have used our country for, for good, for justice, and you've used it to spread the gospel. Even now, people from Cross Point in India and this week in Uganda, and we're just grateful for the, the blessings that you've given us, and we know that much of the means of you bringing these blessings to us has been men and women in the past, and even now who have defended our freedom, who have paid the ultimate sacrifice of laying down their life. Lord, we are so grateful for the military personnel, the army, uh, men and women in this church, some who are even deployed as we speak, some who are just returning from deployment. So grateful for my my two dear brothers, Berkeley and and Mike, and their service to our nation. And thank you for Mike and his commanding men and in combat for many, many deployments, I'm sure, in these past 10 or 15 years. Lord, you've been good to us. But all of this, in some way, as Paul read from Romans 11 earlier, is meant to serve not us and our glory as a people or a nation or a city, but it's meant to serve to display the glory of your name for for. It is from you and through you and to you are all things. So God, I pray by your grace, would you center our hearts on the truth of your redemptive plan in Christ as we work through this familiar story. Open our eyes, show us beautiful things. Save people that do not know you this morning and give them a heart to believe and spur on and convict and encourage believers this morning to be more like Jesus. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to the last chapter in Daniel that is easy to understand. So we've been working through Daniel's biography, basically in in chapters 1 through 6, 
Next week, we're going to get into chapter 7, and chapter 7 through 12 are a bunch of dreams and prophecies of Daniel, and it, it's going to be challenging, but we're going to work our way through those chapters through in this summer. But what's happened up to this point, remember, is that Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylonian king, has, has captured God's people, carried them off into captivity from the promised land in Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carried them off to Babylon, and there he... he set up his kingdom, and he is, he is indoctrinating these Hebrew youths, and Daniel rises to this position of power because of the wisdom that God gave him as a dream interpreter and, and, a, and a vision interpreter. Then Nebuchadnezzar dies, and then his grandson comes to power, Belshazzar, and we know what happened to him in Daniel chapter 5. The handwriting's on the wall. It ends badly for Belshazzar because the Medo-Persians, this other kingdom that God raised up to to strike down the Babylonians, now is in control. And this man named Darius, who is the king of the Medo-Persians, this Persian king is now on the throne. And, and he is very friendly to Daniel. But we're going to find that uh, things are going to go badly for Daniel again. Now here's the point. Now Daniel's chapter 6, we know, is a familiar chapter about Daniel in the lion's den. And from the beginning of our journey through Daniel, I've been talking about maybe you grew up thinking that the point of Daniel, the book of Daniel, especially this story, is that we should strive or dare to be like Daniel. But really the point isn't so much to dare to be like Daniel, it's to see Christ, it's to see Jesus in this text because we know that the whole Old Testament isn't a morality tale about how we should try and do better or work harder, but it's ultimately pointing us to Jesus. You also know that my historical hero is a dead Baptist pastor from the 1800s by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We affectionately refer to him around here as Uncle Chuck. Well, last night, about 10.45 p.m., Josh Allen, where are you, Josh? Right there, had the gall to send me a picture of a page of a Charles Spurgeon sermon on Daniel chapter 6. Charles Spurgeon, the most Christ-centered preacher that I can remember in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul, preached a sermon on Daniel chapter 6 entitled, Dare to be a Daniel. (laughs) Oh my goodness, Chuck, what are you talking about? So, we all have our blind spots, don't we? Someday... Someday when I am in glory, I'll saddle up next to Chuck and I'll say, well, what, t- talk, tell, me, tell me what again was Daniel 6 about. It's not about daring to be Daniel. It's about Jesus. But we'll, we're going to need to do some work here. So let me read. As we work through, there's going to be five truths that I think unfold from Daniel in the lion's den. So we're just going to unfold them as we go. Let me start reading in verse 1. It pleased Darius, this new Medo-Persian king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps, these satraps are kind of like presidents or governors, these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Remember, Daniel was probably in his mid-80s at this point. Because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, 
we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of, the, of his God. So imagine that. He was so squeaky clean. They said that if we're going to get him on something, we're going to have to get him on God. Verse 6, then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. See, their manipulation, their plan is in, in the, the, you know, the beginning stages here. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. So they come up with this plan. It's not Darius's plan. It's their plan to concoct this situation where Daniel is found to be disobeying the king. Verse 8, Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Darius signed the document and injunction. So that leads us to one, the first truth that I want us to see about Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel in the lion's den. And it is this. It is that the world, and by the world, I don't just mean Babylon thousands of years ago, the The kingdom of this world hates people of true faith in God. Augustine, the early church father in the 300s, wrote a book, a famous book in in Christian literature called The City of God. And in it, he contrasted the city of God and the city of man. And he says, really, that, that humanity is divided up into these two cities. Those whom God has redeemed in Christ are part of the city of God, and those that are still in this world are the city of man. And so we have a thousand and one different designations that we put ourselves into. You know, we might call ourselves Americans, or we might identify with a certain ethnic group, or this or that. And all of those things may be true to some degree, but remember, there are only two types of people in this world. There are those, as Colossians 1, a few verses before where Will started reading before, there are those that God has transformed transferred into the kingdom of his son from the kingdom of darkness. And this kingdom of darkness, which God in his sovereignty has given over to the prince of the power of the air, that is our enemy, the devil, is full of a culture and a world that is not neutral, but hates people of true faith in God. And we see Daniel in the middle of this storm of hate of people that will stand up for God. Now you may be thinking, come on Brad, I mean that may be centuries ago or thousands of years ago in some primitive culture, but isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? Wasn't that just back then? Well, we see Jesus promises us this very same thing in the Gospels. Listen to John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. Jesus says this to his disciples. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then one chapter over in John 16, at the very end there, he says, in the world You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is promising us 
that this world will hate us, that it is against him, against his message, against his sovereignty, against his authority, and therefore we should not be surprised because Jesus has promised us when our culture hates us. Peter exhorts us in the very same way later on in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 4. In fact, he just tells us in verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you listen to this mindset and just wonder if the majority of American Christians have this mindset. This is what Peter says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are to start a Facebook advocacy page and rail against how it's not like it used to be. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not what it says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't be such a knucklehead that people can't stand you. Suffer for the right reasons for your stand for Christ, not for your grumpiness. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Daniel is a picture of what, and this is one of the reasons that when we were praying to his pastors, what should we think about? What books should we preach on next? One of the reasons that we settled on Daniel is because certainly we are not being thrown into lion's den as lion's dens as Christians are in modern day America, but there are Christians right now who are facing just as worse, right? Come on, there are Christians that are under the threat of persecution and even death. And there are faithful Egyptian Christians who just a year ago were led out onto a beach by these demonic terrorists and had their heads chopped off on a beach for their faithfulness. Friends, this is happening and it may happen to us someday. But regardless, we can identify with Daniel as we face a culture that is increasingly hostile to us. So what does this mean for us here today in 2000 America, as we realize that the world hates people of true faith in God. And it's really not a change. This has been the case really since the garden in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. Well, I want to give you a, a, a perspective that hopefully will encourage you. Rather than lamenting that the good old days are gone, and we've challenged that assumption about the good old days, right? The good old days weren't really good back in the 50s or 60s or 70s or whatever, that Norman Rockwell painting that many people like to think about how it used to be. Well, how it used to be, I I think it, it was just as bad as it's always been, but just sin maybe wasn't out in the open. And for other ethnic groups, maybe like African Americans in the South, it wasn't so great back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, was it? The point is, is that I think what's happening is one of the things that God is doing is he is using our cultural situation in America now to burn away the the veneer of merely cultural Christianity. It used to be kind of easy to be a Christian to some degree in America. You know, you could kind of, it was sort of fashionable. In fact, it was maybe even 
professionally helpful to sort of be a member of a church. But now, you didn't have like churches that had terrible theology and conservative churches. And that, well, you had you know, churches that were very liberal and churches that were conservative. And there were just kind of this middle ground of people that were just kind of nominal Christians who could just kind of go to church, kind of say that they're Christians, but not really take a stand on anything. And one of the things that I think God is doing in his kindness in our cultural predicament is he is burning up that false middle ground, right? So churches and denominations have to actually take a stand as to where they stand on faithful issues of biblical living and who Christ is. And friends, that is not something to lament. That is something to be heartened by, to be encouraged by, between, because God is defining who his real people are. When you are, getting, when you are about to be thrown into a lion's den, you really, really have to say, yeah, I'm really with God or I'm not with God. And God is, I think he's doing that in his kindness for American Christians today. And we should, we should as Peter says, we should be encouraged. We should, we should consider ourselves blessed. So it means that cultural, nominal Veneer Christianity is in America is dying, and that is a good thing. Just one little maybe application. A couple of you have asked me as we've been working through Daniel, like, well, Brad, what should we, what should we think about a situation like this situation with Target, uh, the department store, and their um, their policy where you know you can identify yourself is whatever gender you want and go into whatever bathroom you want. Well, I mean, isn't that, I mean, doesn't that kind of break your heart? Friends, this is not so much of a political issue, but just that, just think about the human heart that we should be able to say, I can determine what I am, right? Isn't that, that's, friends, that's not mixed up desires. That is an affront against a creator God. Right? We can't, you can't just determine... But, but how should Christians react? Should Christians boycott Target? What should they do? Well, friends, my, my conviction is, is that if we said, well, all the Christians should boycott all of the businesses and things that in some way have some sort of anti-Christian ethic about them, friends, we would have to, we would have to remove ourselves from all of society and not really identify with anybody. Now, that may be your conviction, and that's fine, but I, I just don't think that's a wise and winsome way to go about living in a modern-day Babylon. There's much more we could say about that, but suffice it to say that I think we need to be gracious towards one another as we think about the implications of living in an increasingly hostile culture. And as we work out these questions, really for the first time in our lifetime, We need to be gracious towards one another as Christians who may come down on varying sides of stances on what we should do. And I think that's a conversation that we certainly can't address in just one little sermon, but that we should have with one another, with one another graciously. So the world hates people of true faith in God. Let's keep reading. Verse 10 and 11. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. In other words, Daniel was not deterred. He had a habit and he was going to stick with it. Verse 11, then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea 
before his God. So the edict has been issued this upcoming month. You can't pray to anybody except through Darius, and he will be like your mediator to the gods. And Daniel just knew about it. Verse 10 is clear to tell us that. He knew that this had been signed, but yet he went about his business as he always had, and he opened up his window towards Jerusalem, got down, and prayed. So two things strike me in these two verses, and it is this. First, the second truth is that this world is not our ultimate home. I want you to see this here. This is, I think, I think there's every now and again, especially in Old Testament genre of literature, you'll see these little things just slipped in there to kind of lift our eyes to, to be more than just a description of the events, but to cause our hearts to go beyond the text. What's going on here is Daniel didn't let this decree change one thing about his routine, and he just goes about his normal habit. And in the text there, it says that he opened up his window toward Jerusalem. That's significant. So remember what the situation is. God's people, he made a nation through one man named Abraham, and he gave them a land, Jerusalem, the promised land, the Canaan land. They built a temple there. And then the Babylonians came and captured God's people, carried them off into captivity into Babylon. Now the Persians have conquered the Babylonians. Now the Persians are in control. But the point is, is that God's people, specifically God's man, Daniel, is not home in Jerusalem. He is a captive in a foreign land. Now what's significant about this is that centuries before, years before King Solomon, the son of King David, when God's people were still in the promised land, before the Babylonians and the Persians came and carried them off to captivity, Solomon is building the temple in Jerusalem. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we won't take the time to go there and read it, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, there's this really incredible prayer that Solomon prays about the temple in Jerusalem, which was like the the center of where God would meet his people. And Solomon is praying to dedicate the temple. And in his prayer, it's as if the Holy Spirit inspired him to think about a time when God's people would disobey him and be carried away from this place in Jerusalem so that they could not worship around this temple where God's presence met them. And this is what King Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, God, as he's dedicating this temple, God, when the day comes, when we sin against you, and should an enemy carry us away into a foreign land, When we are in that foreign land, may we turn back towards Jerusalem and remember your goodness to us and repent. And friends, that happens. And that's the situation that Daniel finds himself in. He is in Babylon. He's now under Persian control. And he is turning back towards home. And I think what this is meant to do is to lift us above this earthly realm and to give us a picture of where our true home is. And it's not merely a physical city, Jerusalem. It is with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new Jerusalem that is coming. And this is meant to be a picture to lift our eyes to show us that this this modern-day Babylon that we live in is not our home. About this time of year, um, I, I start to think about going home to El Centro, 
California, my hometown. In fact, Berkeley, remember you went to, you came out one time one summer? Um, it's hot, right? It's out in the middle of the desert. Now, um, my hometown is one of the, I'm just going to say it, got a couple other people from my hometown here. It's one of the ugliest places in the country. Is it not, Brenda? You're also from El Centro. Let's just call it like it is. Um, it's filled with cactuses, graffiti, and trash, basically. Um, but it's home, right? And right about this time, I start to daydream about going back to El Centro in the summer, where it gets to be about 115 during the day, and sitting on my parents' porch in the evening and feeling that hot summer breeze blow through the desert valley. And even though it, it stinks, it's trashy, it's not pretty, uh, it's home, right? There's, there's like this homing device in us. When I get off the plane in San Diego, I can just smell the air, and we drive through the mountains, into the valley, into the desert. I can just, it's home. And God has put that in his people. He's meaning to lift our eyes and to show us that this world is not our ultimate home. We were made for something more than the Babylon we live in. And what we were made for is not the America that we idealize, right? It's not the America with a different presidential you know, situation or a different political or this. That's not what our final hope is. We are in a modern-day Babylon, and part of what God designs for his people is for us to be rid of this world, to lift our hearts, to lift our gaze, so that we would long for what is truly home, which is the new heavens and the new earth. And then thirdly, what I see in this little, these two verses is that the Christian life is to be distinct to an onlooking world. Think about it. What Daniel was doing marked him off from his culture as different. There was this edict issued. It didn't deter Daniel. He got up and he did what he always did. And it exposed him as a follower of the one true God. I wonder as I was reading this, Daniel's way of life exposed him as a true follower of God. Is there anything in our life that exposes us as distinct from this world? Is there anything? What means has God given us as his people to mark us off from a world, a Babylon that we live in? Well, one thing that God has given us to mark us off from the world around us is the ordinance of baptism. In fact, we're going to celebrate that there's going to be a couple, an army couple that has been part of this church, and in a couple months they're moving on, but they are going to be baptized this morning in just a few minutes, and God has given baptism not merely to be a personal spiritual experience, but he's given baptism as a as a thing, an ordinance that the church does together so that we collectively declare that we are part of God's people. Think about really the peculiarity of baptism. A person in their own right mind is getting up in front of hundreds of other people in their clothes dipping down into water, submitting themselves to somebody else to plunge them underneath water, which is not breathable, right? 
what does water do if you stay underneath it? You drown. And that's what baptism is meant to signify, that we are going under the waters of God's judgment, and God's judgment is on us, but we are in Christ, and so Christ who bore the wrath of God's judgment for us, has died for us. He bore the floodwaters of God's wrath for us, and we are symbolizing that we are dead to ourselves in Christ. And then we rise up out of those waters because Jesus, who died for us on the cross, didn't stay dead. He rose again, and because he is alive, and because he's a king, and because he has all authority, he can make us alive, and he has if we're trusting in Christ. And so it's not just some ritual thing that Christians do that's kind of strange. We are enacting, we are symbolizing, we are demonstrating to an onlooking world that I am dead to myself and this world around me and the only reason that I am alive and the place that I will live forever is because of him who died and rose again for me. Friends, that is peculiar, that is strange. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians calls it foolish. And it is the message of the Bible. And God intends to mark his people off. But we live in a culture, in a generation, where Christians are trying to be so cool and hip, right? I mean, everybody just wants to be kind of like the world. And God intends to mark his people off. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes the petition? So they're conniving now. They're bringing it up. They concocted this plan, and now they're, now they're telling on Daniel that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. So isn't that kind of peculiar? Darius, who issued the decree, really liked Daniel, but now he's kind of finds himself caught. He's kind of in a catch-22 because he evidently had to, you know, keep, keep his authority sort of in check and couldn't go back on his word. Verse 15, then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Verse 16, very interesting. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now, isn't that ironic? The king who issued the edict, who I think probably could have, you know, said, no, no, we're just going to change it this one time, is now like, Daniel, I know this was my law, but I can't really do anything. I'm completely impotent in this situation, so good luck. Hope your God can save you. The impotence of human power is stunning. Verse 17, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, 
No diversions were brought to him and slept fed from him. Which leads us to the fourth truth that we see in this text, I think, is that really it's the futility of putting our trust in men. Don't put your trust in men. The king couldn't even help Daniel get out of his own decree. The psalmist puts it this way. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, or we might say, parentheses, in a presidential candidate in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. How does this apply to us? Well, I've alluded to it several times. Is your hope in a political party or a presidential candidate? Well, in particular, this election cycle, you are probably feeling quite hopeless. Or is your hope in the defeat of a particular candidate? To the degree that we, as Bible-believing Christians, act like the sky is falling because we have two less-than-ideal choices for President of the United States, we belie how little our confidence is in God. It is a horrible witness to an onlooking world. It's a horrible witness. And God's people have had it much worse than it will be regardless of who is elected president in America in the history of God's dealings with his people. Much worse. And not only that, the vast majority of Christians now politically have it much worse than Americans do. We were sitting with Gareth, our friend in India. They left 14 years ago to go to India. And we're just, you know, eating barbecue at Ed's Country Cooking and Barbecue in Phoenix City, Alabama. Come on. I mean, it doesn't get more friendly than that, right? I mean, you can talk about Jesus all you want. You could stand up on the tables at Ed's and you could preach a sermon. They might tell you to, you know, pipe it down, you know, whatever. They'd rather hear you talk about Alabama's 17 mythical national championships or whatever. I don't know what... But, no, I, just, I just had to make sure you were still, still with me. But, but, you know, you would have no threat of other than just people saying, who's that crazy kid? And just sort of out of the, just happening, Garrett's like, oh yeah, I mean, I've, I've been thrown in prison twice for witnessing to people in India by a Hindu hostile government that in the northern part of India beats pastors to death. And we freak out because Mrs. Clinton or Mr. Trump might, might, might be the next president of the United States. Friends, I'm not saying we should not be concerned. We should be the best of all citizens. We should vote. <laughs> like I say, we should vote early and we should vote often. <laughs> but to the degree that we run around like chicken littles, and act like the sky is falling. Friends, we absolutely undercut our ability to be a winsome witness of the kingdom that is coming. 
Jesus has said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom that is coming, which is his kingdom. We ultimately are not citizens of this kingdom. That's what Paul says in Philippians, that we are citizens of heaven. Yes, we may be temporarily Americans or South Africans or Ugandans or Indians, but friends, there is something far greater, far more eternal, and far more central to your identity. And if you are in Christ, it is the fact that you are a citizen of the kingdom that is coming. And notice the picture that Jesus gives us in Matthew 16 when he tells us that the gate of hell will not prevail against the sure victory of God's kingdom. What do you do behind a gate? You hide behind a gate. Notice the posture. Notice who's on the offense in that picture. The kingdom of God is on the offense against the kingdom of hell, which is behind the gates, friends. That's meant to clue us in to the fact that Jesus' victory is certain and sure. And we just happen to, in God's providence, live in a time when the ebb seems to be against us a little bit. But friends, we should know that we are people that are on God's side. We should not trust in men. And he will win. It is sure and certain. And that should put steel in our spines as we face an uncertain future. Let's keep reading and finish it up. Verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. I mean, he was up all night worried. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, Oh, king, Live forever. Can you imagine that? I mean, what were the lions doing? Were they in some sort of stupor? Were they over in the side gnawing on a little cat bone or something? What were they doing? Daniel standing up in his mid-80s. Here I am. Right? And that just, that tells you it's a miracle. It's not like they were already too hungry to eat Daniel. Or maybe they were still sleeping. Daniel doesn't go, shh, king, shh, shh. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, listen to this, 24 is, does not make it into the children's illustrated Bibles very often. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. I I don't know what to tell you about that other than disobeying God, working against God's people, fighting against the sovereignty of God and His kingdom has terrible, terrible, terrible consequences. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Ugh. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So before we put the fifth truth up there, let me just say this is where I think we, can, we need to be careful, right? Because over the years, maybe some of us have read this and we've thought, okay, if, if I am like Daniel, then God will rescue me. Here's the problem with that. In Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, when the writer of Hebrews is recounting this great hall of fame of faith of God's people through the ages, he mentions the angel shutting the mouths of the lions in Daniel chapter 11 as a sign of God's miraculous work on the behalf of his people. But right after that, he says that God who worked through these great people, he shut the mouths of lions and others were sawn in half and tortured. So friends, if we just read our whole Bible, we know immediately that this story is not meant to tell us that if we will just be really, really good and exemplary and a good witness for God, then God will deliver us out of all of our trials. Friends, that has not been the case for God's people in the history. It's not even the case for God's people in the Bible. Sometimes you get sawn in two. Sometimes people do get fed to the lions. In fact, I was just remembering as I was writing this, uh, preparing for this sermon, that in seminary I had to write a paper on, a church history paper on a man named Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius, which is such a cool name, if we had a fifth child, his name would be Ignatius. Can you imagine that? Ignatius. Iggy. What's up, baby? Iggy. Come on. (laughs) Ignatius was the pastor of the church at Antioch after Peter in the first century. Ignatius, as tradition holds it, was the first Christian martyr in the Colosseum in Rome. And Ignatius wrote a letter to the Romans. In fact, it's called Ignatius's Letter to the Romans. And as Ignatius is being carried off from Antioch to Rome to face his martyrdom in the Roman Colosseum, where he knew that he was going to be fed to the lions, he writes a letter to the church in Rome who he supposes might be plotting to break him free and rescue him. Now, Ignatius knew his Bible. He knew his Old Testament. The New New Testament was still in the process of being written and collected. Ignatius knew his Old Testament. He knew the story of how God shut the mouths of lions in Daniel chapter 6. And Ignatius, Ignatius writes to the church in Rome in the early 100s. He says, I know, dear brothers and sisters, that you will be persuaded to try and intervene on my behalf. But he says, do not. In fact, he says, that when the wild beasts, meaning the lions, are tearing my flesh from my bone, I will then know what it is to truly commune with my Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he writes, don't intervene. I want to die at the mouth of a lion. Now, I'm not saying we need to feel that way ourselves. But my point is, is that it happened. Ignatius was fed to the lions in Rome in the early 100s. Friends, this is not a promise that God will get us out of every trial. So what is it? And I think it is this. I think the point of the Daniel and the lion's den is 
number five here, Daniel in the den points us to Jesus on the cross. Should we learn from Daniel's example about how to stand in the face of a hostile culture? Absolutely. So in that sense, I want to agree with my hero from the 1800s that we should, we should, I'm going to say it, we should dare to be a Daniel. But friends, let's not stop there. How would the first Jewish readers have read this? You see, we as Americans naturally read the Bible often merely for personal application, not as a corporate people. The early Jewish exiles would have read this and thought, not, man, I want to be like Daniel. No, they were people that were in captivity. They would have read this story and they would have thought, we need another leader like Daniel. We need another one who will finally and fully rescue us from captivity, who will finally and fully rescue us from the mouth of the lions. And friends, that's the point of this text. It's meant to lift our eyes, to lift our gaze from Daniel to the true and better Daniel that will come and has come, Jesus, who has faced not merely just physical lions, but spiritual lions of sin and death on our behalf and has shut their mouths once and for all for his people. A friend of mine, a pastor in the Atlanta area by the name of Aaron Minikoff, a few weeks ago as I was getting ready for this series through Daniel, I listened to his sermon on Daniel chapter 6 and he noted the parallels between the den of Daniel and the cross of Christ. He said, Daniel was arrested in his home just after prayer. Jesus was arrested in the garden just after prayer. Daniel was found blameless by Darius, who wouldn't spare him. And Jesus was found blameless by Pilate, who wouldn't spare him. Daniel was fed to the lions in a dark den. Jesus was fed to spiritual lions of sin and death on a dark cross. Daniel miraculously escaped a sealed tomb. And Jesus miraculously escaped a sealed tomb. Friends, this story, this text, this din is about Jesus. I conclude with this reading from, you guessed it, Romans chapter 8. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things, these spiritual lions? Because see, here's the thing. Even if we were to say, dare to be like a Daniel, I mean, who among us could stand up and say, man, if you checked everything in my life, it would be blameless. Really? Do we want to do that? Every message, every, every email, every, every, no. What shall we say to these things? These lions who we face. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all to the lions of sin and death that rightfully had their claim on us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Friends, there's more truth in that little verse than there is in the whole library of Congress. It means that God the Son, the eternally holy, the infinitely holy Son of God, who became a man and lived a righteous and completely blameless life, laid down his life on the cross to bear the wrath from God that should have been ours. Because you see, our problem is not merely horizontal lions and culture and people in Babylon. Our greatest problem is the wrath of God that is rightly bearing down on every one of our heads because we are not blameless. And Jesus, through his perfect life and his eternal holiness, lays down his life and absorbs and satisfies and removes and extinguishes God's judgment for all those that would ever trust in him. And he doesn't just take away the wrath. He turns it into favor and grace and love and lavishes it upon those who will trust in him, friends. That's what that verse is saying. And then it says that he not only is doing that, but he's leaving us here and he is praying for us. Jesus, the Son of God, raised again from the grave by the Spirit of God, is praying to God the Father on our behalf while he leaves us here in Babylon. Put that in your pipe and smoke it and let it put steel in your spine. Jesus is praying for you now as you face the lions that he has surely conquered for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And amen. Let the den of Daniel point you to the victory of Christ on the cross. And if you came into this room not a believer, you, 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 the, the, the moral of the story is not go, go run out of here and try better and get your act together and be more like Daniel. The point is, is that you have no hope. You're in a lion's den of God's judgment and you will be devoured. And your only hope is that God, by his sovereign grace, would give you eyes to see and a heart to believe so that you can trust in what his son did on your behalf if you will trust in him. Do it even now. If God, if that is even a thought in your mind, I believe that is evidence that God is giving you the very thing that he requires of you, which is faith and trust in him and what he did for you to bring himself glory and you eternal joy. And if you are a Christian and you are fretting over what seems to be a a falling sky, know that you were not made for Babylon. You were made for home. And he will surely bring you safely there. Lord, as we... 
turn our attention now to these two dear ones, Greg and Veronica Peterson, as they are baptized before their faith family. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, those that came into this room not yet trusting, that you would give them faith to turn away from trusting in themselves and put all of their hope in what Christ alone has done in the din of sin and death on the cross for us. And Lord, for those that are trusting in you, let it, let it embolden us to live as your people in this day and age for your glory as we long for home. Do it all, I pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.